On this episode, the story of Tony Roll and Duncan Hamilton as we put right some of the myths of the past. JECpodcast.com Hello, welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. And after a short break, we're back. Wayne Scott, back with you, of course. Hello, and I hope you're well. I hope you've enjoyed some fantastic autumn Jaguar weather. Uh, of course, it has been a bit rubbish recently. Storms and everything. History will record this as being the most storms I think we've ever had in an autumn here in the UK. Uh, so I uh, hope you've battened down the hatches. Time, perhaps, to tuck the Jaguar under the covers for a little while and listen instead with something nice to drink and by a cosy fire to the Jaguar Enthusiast podcast and we'll take you through some amazing stories from the history of Jaguar. And we're back with a bang in this episode because this is part one of an exciting interview that I had investigating the background and story of the lives of two drivers who took Jaguar to victory at Le Mans exactly 70 years ago in 1953. I'm, of course, talking about Tony Rolton, Duncan Hamilton. And in this episode, we investigate the fascinating and heroic lives of these Jaguar icons with their descendants, Stuart Rolt, Tony Rolt's son, Caroline Lee, Duncan Hamilton's daughter, and Dominic Hamilton, Duncan Hamilton's grandson. And it's a fascinating insight. We start way back at the very beginning, when Duncan Hamilton was a baby, in fact, and we go all the way through some of the stories of their heroic life through World War II and emerging out the other side into these motorsport stars. And, of course, we ask the question about the lead-up to the 1953 Le Mans, that famous story. Did Duncan Hamilton and Tony Rolt really go down the pub and get utterly smashed before winning the 24-hour race? Did they really drown their sorrows in the Le Mans city centre after they thought they'd been disqualified? And did Sir William Lyons really bribe the French authorities to let his team run? Or was it all just fabricated, a story to sell more copies of Duncan Hamilton's fantastic biography, Touch Wood? It's been a long-running historical myth, so we'll put it to the family. Is that story true or false? We'll find out with the story of Duncan Hamilton and Tony Rolt next. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Wayne Scott here at the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust with Dominic Hamilton, Caroline Lee and Stuart Rolt. And we're going to tell the story of the two lives of James Duncan Hamilton and Major Anthony Peter Roylance Rolt. So we'll start with the story of James Duncan Hamilton, born in 1920 in Cork in Ireland. And um, Caroline, um, I think the drama in Duncan Hamilton's life, as he would later be known to the motorsport press and his friends, uh, began age two, um, where I understand he had a pram crash. Yeah, down many, many steps. Yes, he did. Um, I believe he, he pushed the wheels and he loved the motion of it. And um, it was tumbled down the steps into the garden. Well, the movement, I think, excited him as a little baby and um, off it went. The family moved to London, didn't they? What do we know about 
why that move took place? Well, they first moved, um, they were in Woking in Surrey, of my parents when they newly married and they had a flat there. And um, a, yes, Adrian was born there and yes, I think I was just born there too. And then they moved to Wokingham in Berkshire, a lovely house called Clare Court. And, and we lived there for very many years. His first car is an Austin 7, which he also crashed. We're getting the picture of a young man here that is a bit daredevil, I'm thinking. He's already pushing the boundaries of what he's, what he's doing in vehicles, um, right from his pram, of course, at the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, undeterred, though, he went on to drive a larger car, um, which was a Vauxhall, um, quite a big vintage Vauxhall. And then when World War II broke out, he was 19, wasn't he? He was. Um, do you think knowing what you know about him, he would have been excited about the opportunity of, of going and serving, or um, was it something that interested him at all, serving in the forces? All young men at the start of the war wanted to fight, wanted, you know, it was that era, I think everyone was really genned up about it, and he, I think he, he wanted to do his duty, I think he, yeah. I think his, first, well, his first love was flying. Well, he went into the fleet era. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so having raced, I think, Bugattis at Chelsea Walsh and things like that, and also loved flying. And Brooklands. He used to go to Brooklands quite a lot. He did. And, um, yeah. See what was going on. As a 19-year-old, he was yeah. flying Lysanders in the fleet air arm. I've actually it's got terrifying. a picture. I should have brought it. It's a lovely picture of him in black and white, wearing a sheepskin jacket just before... I should have brought it, I'm sorry. Um, before he went off in, in, a, in a flying jacket. It's just, just a profile, um, huge picture. And, you know, he looked so young, so 19. young. I mean, 19, when you think about it. He also then, after the Lysanders, went on to fly the naval version of the Spitfire, didn't he? The, I think they were called the Seafires. Um, did he have fond memories of, of those, those times? He never discussed it, right? Okay. Yeah, he never discussed no. With us. I spoke to him a couple of times, and some things were a little, you know, a good story uh, as a child, uh, and talking to one's grandfather. But he, yeah, I, I, like, like most people, well, they didn't want to talk about it. Uh, I know he flew out in Kenya, in Mombasa, which is where he met. Yes, he met Mombasa. Um, Mom, Mom, um, yes, on and she Niali worked Beach. in Submarine HQ, I think, in London. I don't know. In Angel. Um, and they met down there. What he was flying down in Kenya or doing, m maybe not a lot. <laughs> well, he did emerge from the war with no doubt lots of stories, as you say, Dominic, that he probably kept to himself for good reason and went into a, a relatively stable, perhaps even normal job as a car salesman at Henley's, didn't he? This is now 1946. So, uh, so at this point, he's working, as a, he's working as a salesman. He, I guess, is missing, I would imagine, the adrenaline-filled life of flying aircraft. Um, so now he goes out and um, you know, goes back to his love of, of motor vehicles and of racing. Um, he buys a supercharged MG, it was an R-Type. He buys it from someone very important 
in his later life, Mike Hawthorne's father, Leslie Hawthorne. And then we get to the really important point, which leads into our story of how he ends up at Jaguar, of course, because Donald Healy, who had met Tony Rolt, um, Donald Healy was, of course, designer at Triumph at the time. He asked Tony Rolt to drive the Healy Nash at Le Mans in 1950. And as I understand it, Tony Rolt said, I need Duncan Hamilton as my co-driver. So how did the two meet? How does this relationship begin? They were both racing at exact contemporaries. And my dad um, was able to see that Duncan was pretty quick. And uh, there's a quote I have, which is when asked by Donald um, and whether he should be, uh, who, who he'd like to do Le Mans with, and he, he said, Duncan Hamilton would be the, be the man. And, um, and Donald Healy said, um, but he's a bit wild, isn't he? And Dad said, yes, but when it comes to a proper motor race, he's absolutely on it and concentrates. So, um, and that's, they, they teamed up. And then when it came to uh, four years later, lofty England, Dad got his drive with, with um, Jaguar by going very quickly at Dundrod. Again, Lofty England said, um, right, you're on, Who, who's your man? He said, I want, to, I want Duncan again because he's, quote, he's the man I want to do the, these long distance races with and I have total faith in. So they were off again, that's it. And I think Lofty England's reply to that was, you've got to be mad, haven't you? Well, yeah, <laughs> lose a bit. But I, my, my father was, I think he could say he persuaded Lofty that uh, Duncan was absolutely right for the job, and he was, yeah. spot on. Yeah. You know, because there was a there's, there's the sort of wild side, and there's also the really uh, professional mm. side, which was what Lofty was looking for. And so, um, and they had done Le Mans three times already before with, with, with the Heelys, mm. and so he was, he was, a, he was a, the right man mm. for the job. I think to explain how they obviously had so much in common, we should go back in time at this point and just look at the early life story of your father, Stuart. Um, Major Anthony Peter Roylance Rolt, MC in Bar. We must get that in because it's really important. Um, born in Borden in Hampshire in 1918. So two years older than Duncan. Born in Hampshire, but brought up in St Asaph, wasn't yeah. he? So how did that come about? Um, that came about because my grandfather was a professional soldier, a brigadier general, retired, uh, had children very late in life, um, four children, and then sadly died when my father was 13. And they moved to uh, North Wales. So my grandmother was on a farm in North Wales on her own with four children. Um, and that they bought because there was a little bit of money coming down through her side of the family, um, which allowed them to, to live there. And, and of course, a retired brigadier in those days earned nothing at all. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't much money around. And um, they were able to buy themselves a little farm in North Wales. And that's why they ended up there. And there's right. um, lots of stories to come out of that one, including <laughs> Lofty England, which will do that. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, ultimately, though, he would be educated at Eton, wouldn't yes, he? Yes, so. somehow there was enough money to do that. And right. um, I don't think my three aunts were educated as expensively, but he, yes, he was educated at Eton. He's, I, and he was uh, 
He was at Eton when his, his father died. He okay. was 13 years old. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And his mother died, sadly. I mean, I, you know, I can go on forever. But his mother then died when he was a prisoner of war in Germany. So wow. pretty tough. Yeah. 24 when she died. Yeah. That is a lot to deal with, I, isn't it? Yeah. No, I have the letter from my aunt telling him his mother had died as a prison when he was, you know, the letters took months to get through to the prison camps before Kelders. An insight into the incredible strength yeah. that yeah. they all had during yeah. that period of time, you know. But if I, forgive me, but the, stay, just, while it stays in my brain, the St. Asaph story in Jaguar is quite nice because suddenly there was this money that came through because my grandmother was an heir to some money that came from the Walker Brewery business in, in Scotland. And it was ridiculously amount of money. And, and some of it filtered through at the right moment. Perfect moment for my father, who was trying to be a racing driver, and you'll come to that. That was the moment when he persuaded his mother that he really ought to have a very competitive car. And so they bought Remus, the ERA, from White Mouse Racing, Bira. And the person who delivered it before the war to this little farm in Wales was a chap called Lofty England. Oh. Okay. How's right. that? Right. Yeah. Because this was the interesting bit of the story I was trying to link. How, how you go from living on a farm and yeah. growing up on a farm in North Wales to buying an ERA from two princes that you met at Eton. It's an incredible story, isn't yeah. it? Well, I don't think he knew Beer at Eaton really. He was a bit, he was right. a bit older. Um, and they, the, 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 the incredible story is that suddenly there was enough money to do that. And my aunts were each given a horse to go you know, hunting with. And he said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to, I want to go racing. And, but he was the only son, youngest, three older sisters, and his, mother's, his mother adored him. Mm -hmm. um, it's what happens, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he, you can see the, the sort of family trait running through here because you, you can see very clearly he was a, um, a career army man, slightly different to Duncan in that yep. he could see the career yep. in it, and of course after Eton went yep. to Sandhurst, yep. didn't he? Yep. Well, he? And then joined the Rifle Brigade. Yeah, he was right? commissioned into the Rifle Brigade uh, straight from Sandhurst, and he was, his career was going to be a professional soldier, but at the same time he was trying to be, he was, he was an amateur racing driver with some money and also being a soldier uh, until along came the war. Mm -hmm. which rather put a kibosh on it. But he won the British Empire Trophy in 1939 after, you know, which is the year that war broke out. But yeah. when he, we're with Remus at Donington, um, which is the sort of the highlight of his pre-war racing. You know, I mentioned in 1950 there, his first drive with Duncan Hamilton for Donald Healy. Yeah. That story goes back to pre-war times though, because he made his racing debut in a Triumph Gloria Southern Cross, yep. 1936. Yep. Now this was the time at Triumph when Donald Healy was at the helm. Yep. That was the sports car he developed and was incredibly proud of the moment he'd taken Triumph from being a sort of everyday, the Super 7s, 1020s, out of the Dawson Car Company in Coventry through to being a high class sports car for the wealthy. And they're now in motorsport. Donald Healy himself, of course, had, had raced the Glorias as well. Age 19 then, also while Donald Healy is at the helm of Triumph, he's racing an eight-cylinder Dolomite, which is just incredible. Yeah. At? At? Um, Spa. Spa, yes. First ever motor race, Spa, 20, Spa 24 hours. At yes. Uh, first ever race 
which is quite slightly bonkers. Incredible, yeah. Yeah. incredible. Yeah. Three of these cars now exist. That's, they were rare cars, incredible. You know, it was uh, 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 Donald Healy was um, inspired by the Alfa Romeo 8C. They bought one on Triumph's yeah. account. Um, used it as a as a as a design um, test. Bed, Looked a bit like. like it. Yes, and all of these stories are happening before World War Two breaks out. These relationships, yeah. though, are being yeah. made, aren't yeah. they, between your father and Donald Healy, yeah. which would be that in, important point in 1950 yeah. that would come later. And um, for, for those who don't know it, Spa in those days was a terrifying circuit, mm. very 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 long, very fast. Um, people killed there every year, and it went on being terrifyingly fast right up to the um, 70s. Now it's much safer. I, I did the last ever 24-hour race there in, in a, um, and it was a really scary place. And they, every year people were being killed. And uh, now it's about a quarter of the distance of the original c circuit, which was open roads, public roads, like Le Mans was. Yeah. You know, close those roads for a weekend and go racing. Yeah. Houses, trees, yeah. no Lots safety trees. barriers, <laughs> people hurtling off into into the undergrowth um, and if I may there's a nice story about my dad's enthusiasm when he was at Eton he persuaded one of his uh, one of the Eton masters that it would be a good idea this sounds crazy that they should go to the spa 24 hours as spectators and he he commissioned a an aeroplane with with four other Etonians and this master and they flew across the channel spa and then he, he told me how it, what it was like as a boy to creep up to the edge of the track through the, through the forest, because it was a fast circuit and trees everywhere, and sit with your nose there with the track going past with uh, auto unions and Mercedes hurtling past at ridiculous speeds. Amazing. And then, then they flew back, and he was you know, back in the classroom the next morning. <laughs> Fantastic, yeah. isn't it? Then got expelled from Eton, very unwisely, because his last term, he kept a car in a garage um, up in Windsor, and he was spotted by one of the matrons of the school, his dame, um, driving it. So he, he, um, his last term at Eton came to a, was short. He then went off and did a crammer and got his qualification to get in the army. The car was more important at yeah. all times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> And he did, he, did, he did lose his driving license before we had a driving license for driving up the main high street in St. Asaph in North Wales before we had a license and was spotted by the local Bobby. And that rather, that rather kiboshed him getting a driving license. But he was able to, in those days you could go motor racing without a driving license. So he went motor racing before we had a driving license or because the driving license was taken away from him. So you uh, did have a bit of a wild side. Absolutely, God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, you mentioned there, Stuart, the British Empire Trophy at Donington, um, which is a fantastic race for him because he, I think, had his first time in the limelight at this moment because one of the newspaper headlines read, Boy Driver wins 200-mile race, yeah, didn't it? Absolutely. Um, it which just shows you how young yeah. they all were at yeah. this point. And you see pictures of him, he looks like a boy. It's ridiculous. Yeah. 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 But at this point, the army's calling, isn't it? Um, yeah, he's... he's He's committed to uh, two years at Sandhurst, and he's going to be a professional soldier. At this point, did he have the share in the ERA with St. John Jock Horsfall? Was that around that period of time? Yeah, uh, at the outbreak of war, he, I think they did a deal, and Dad went off to fight. When Dad came back from five years as a prisoner, something had happened to the ERA. I never quite 
got what it was. Because they did race together one more time after the war, didn't they? So he came back and did, I think, one race with they did, the uh, ERA. Uh, they did, uh, the, I think, the British Grand Prix at, at Silverstone okay. yeah. uh, in the ERA. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Let's talk about the war and Tony Roll because incredible story. He's a lieutenant in the Rifle Brigade when war breaks out. 1940, awarded the Military Cross for defending Calais, wasn't he? Yep. Um, incredible moment for him, I'm sure, in his, in his life. Was it something that he spoke about a lot? Yes, in fact, I took him back to a Calais reunion, um, which was very moving. And, they, and by the way, they still have a Calais his regiment, the Rifle Brigade, still go back every year. Right. And if you, if you, in the old days, you pulled in on a ferry, recently you pulled in on a ferry, and there's a big cross, which is the Rifle Brigade Memorial. There were, there were three regiments who fought there. Uh, so it's a memorial to those three regiments, and they still celebrate it every year. And it was, um, I mean, you know, how long have you got? Because the Battle of Calais was a, has been much written about. But um, he, it was a, um, from the military point of view, a complete disaster in that the things were going badly wrong in in uh, in the low countries the germans were sweeping across belgium holland and churchill decided um that something needs to be done to boost french morale because the french were on the were not on the, were actually fighting bravely but it wasn't going well and the british were withdrawing so three uh, suddenly dad got the order to with his platoon and his regiment and two other regiments um, to go to France to help. So they embarked from Southampton. Um, and I have his letter to his mum saying, I can't tell anyone I'm going, but we're off. And um, they went to Calais. They landed at Calais. Calais, by that time, was already uh, being strafed by the Germans. The, the French um, dockers were, weren't helpful unloading the kit. A lot of military equipment didn't get unloaded, uh, and they suddenly. And the idea was they were going to unload, get organised, and go and help what was happening 50 miles away. What they found with the Germans were about four miles away, and so hence then began the Battle of Calais, which went on for four days, which was a horrible, grim, uh, classic uh, town in city battle with the Germans surrounding Calais and these three British regiments uh, trying to do their best. And it ended up with a lot of his, his my dad's best friend, David Sladen, was killed, um, and they were all killed or captured. And hence, so four days after embarking to France in 1940, uh, my father was a prisoner of war. And he was, you know, of all the, you, you've got the idea of what sort of person he was. He's, he was absolutely, he, he was going to go and do his bit for his country. Yeah. And five days, four days later, you're in the hands of the Germans. Hence his, his in, in, um, incessant attempts to escape because yeah. he felt he had, he had failed his country, failed in his duty, even though uh, but the military cross you mentioned was for the way he conducted himself in, at Calais in the battle. Um, and there's some really lovely stuff written about that um, what, and what he was up to. Age 22. Age 22, yeah. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And then, um, and then five years of prisoner of war. They're important stories to the story of Jaguar because it gives us an insight into what they'd been through, their attitude on life, 
and, and, and their determination, I think, as well, to, to sort of do their duty and do the best they could and perform. And um, I think that's, I think it all adds into why the 50s in particular were a golden age of motorsport. Because having been through all that, mm. driving a car fast and, and perhaps dying wasn't really a big deal no. in many ways. Well, in fact, in fact, people were driving fast cars, uh, racing cars and being killed all the time. It's, mm. it's just, it was part of, part of the deal, mm. which went on for a long time, by the way. Yeah. You know, yeah. God bless Jackie Stewart and everything he did because he changed safety in motor racing. Yeah. But, uh, there wasn't safety, was there, at that time? There was no. Cars were, cars were lethal and the tracks were lethal. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned then, so he's, he's now captured. Yep. He's so brilliant at trying to escape that they keep moving him around yep. to ever more secure prisoner of war camps. Yep. In the end, he ends up at probably the nastiest and the most secure Colditz. Um, did, he, did he ever talk much about that place and, and, and what it felt like? Uh, not a lot, actually, because he was, um, a lot of people were in Colditz for, for years and years. He, he arrived quite late because he kept trying to escape, being recaptured, and, 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 uh, and I've got, a, one of the things I have got, I think probably of, of all his possessions, the, what I treasure most is his uh, handwritten diary of one particular escape across Germany, which we, he, he and another guy went for five days, four days across Germany, and on the way he kept immaculate notes, a diary, which I have. And uh, actually, a few years ago, I went and walked his route on, on my own, yeah. Wow. Uh, following his immaculate um, notes, you know, crossroads here, village there, signpost there. <laughs> and this little bit of rural Germany, it's all the same, until he got captured on the, on the Swiss border with um, 500 metres from the Swiss border. He'd been on the run five days there, and, and cross-country, only moving at night. Um, and, uh, it's, how how uh, were they captured? He walked into a border guard, came around the corner of a wood, and there was a guy there. They tried to bluff their way, saying they were Czechoslovakian workers. Didn't work too well. Anyway, that's a whole different story. I could bang on for that. But uh, anyway, going back to the escapes, he kept, he kept trying to escape. And finally, they said, right, enough of this, off to Colditz. And that's, the, that's how it started. But that, he got an MC, a military cross, for his escape attempts as well. That's the bar you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think... The, the, the story from his many escape attempts that probably captures most imaginations is this glider design yeah. that he came up with. And this has to have been the inspiration for so many films afterwards, yeah. you know, long before Steve McQueen even yeah. thought of the, the great escape. You know, here's, here's our man, our, our Jaguar driver, designing a glider. So tell, tell, us, tell us the story. Well, the, the, he didn't design it. He had an idea. Right. And because you're locked up in this bloody awful castle and morale is low because by then um, Hitler had decided that escaped prisoners were going to get shot and you've all seen The Great Escape and that was the start of a really terrifying moment when uh, now you and every time he was captured he was he did 30 days solitary confinement and that was the punishment and away you go um, now uh, now it, the, the word came also the war was going our way therefore boys don't risk it stay put and we will be there one day to 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 let you out um, and if you do escape there's a chance you're going to get shot mm -hmm. so um, this was an idea whereby um, they would at the last resort use the glider 
the glider idea was fantastic, and he came up with the idea that you could launch a glider um, from the roof and fly across the river. And then he went to a couple of um, his friends in Colditz, uh, who he knew were, one of them was Bill Goldfinch, who knew how to design a glider. Um, and they set to, but, and the whole, the, the, the astonishing thing about the glider idea is one, the idea, and two, how they built it in the attic without the Germans realizing they were building yeah. it behind a closed, a fake wall in the attic. And, they, and in one night they constructed the fake wall, plaster and bits of that and a bit of bedding and stuff. Anyway, and the glider was, glider was built out of wood used from bed planks and you name it. And then, uh, and then of course, the great moment came when um, once the Americans liberated them, uh, they showed the German guards the glider sitting in the attic, which I'd love to have been there for that. <laughs> there is one photograph of it taken by an American journalist, woman, and it's the only photograph. And then they all came home, and, the America, and, and it must have probably been used for firewood by the yeah. starving Germans. Thank goodness we didn't need yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. But now, if you go to Colditz now, there is a full-scale replica sitting there. There was a moment when I rang I was determined to go, and I, I, I contacted Colditz, and I spoke to this lovely uh, lady who was, who was a guide, I, and I said who I was, and she said, oh, great, come along. And um, when, she, <laughs> um, when I turned up, she said, ah, uh, oh, you look just like your father. I said, really? I said, yeah, he said, she said, um, I see him every day. I said, really? And anyway, she took me up the main staircase in what's now Coldest Castle, which is now a tourist attraction. And there's a huge picture of my dad. Really? Yeah, really? absolutely. The glider builders. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Very moving. It was very moving. Yeah. They are the liberated. He's back home in the UK now. Yep. And it's at this point, he's now a major, isn't he, by the time the war ends? Yep. He stayed in the army just a little bit after the war, got promoted to major. And from then on, I mean, a lot of people think it's rather weird, um, but he called himself Major Rolt from then on, not Mr. Right. Rolt or Captain Rolt or anything else. A lot of people after the war dropped their military titles, uh, but he was, in those days, a Major with two MCs. He felt it was perfectly good to you. And so at work, at Ferguson and FFD, he was the Major. Everyone called the him major. the Major. Yeah. Um, in fact, Duncan. Yes, my father always called Tony Rolt the Major. It was his, he always referred to him as the Major said or the Major is coming or whatever it was. And we all knew. <laughs> there was only one Major in our family. It was just a nickname, but I don't know, a lot of people didn't. Um, I think Colonels used to sort of keep Colonel and Major was okay, but I think, yeah. So that's, anyway. So he was a Major, but he then left the army to follow his instincts, which was to do things with uh, cars. So we did mention then, Stuart, that uh, there was one race back in the ERA yep. with Horsefall. Um, they decided to go their separate ways. There was an Alfa Romeo, though, as well. No, the Alfa, he, he went and bought a, a, an Alfa Romeo single-seater for right, okay. single-seater racing. And, uh, having, and uh, it started off as a thing called a bimotori twin engine. Yeah. And they took one engine out and um, he went single-seater racing with that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And in, in the story, which, to sort of bring it up to date, before the war, he'd, his ERA had been tuned by a lovely guy called Fred Dixon, famous 
uh, racer himself, then engine and then car chassis tuner. And uh, after the war, he then started his own uh, business, Dixon Rolt Developments, to, to, to do the things that they then did, which became Ferguson, which became FH Developments. Okay. And that's the story of... So, so Dixon was uh, helping him with his racing cars, and he helped him with the, with the Vimo Tory. He was very, very Yorkshire. His favourite... I never understood it. it. made my dad really laugh. But Fred's famous saying was, slowly with an older woman. And I, we all, you see, you're laughing, and I laugh. I think I don't understand why it's funny, but it was his friend. Dad used to say, "Slowly with," and it used to come out all the time. Slowly with an older woman. The mind boggles. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah, Fred, a lovely guy. I'm afraid, um, you know, for the record, a fantastic individual. But uh, unfortunately, once my father had uh, got the backing of Harry Ferguson, who was this hugely successful tractor, what you call today billionaire, like, like JCB today, um, the equivalent to, um, right, we're going to build the world's safest car, we're gonna, the Ferguson car, and you guys, uh, Dixon and Rolt, are going to do it. And unfortunately, Fred couldn't survive in that environment um, mm -hmm. because he is, let's say, his uh, discipline with himself, and particularly, I hate to say it, the booze, mm -hmm. uh, was such that my father had this very painful moment when he had to say to Fred, I'm afraid it's the end. We, we, you know, we, we, your way of uh, conducting yourself doesn't fit in with Harry Ferguson. Harry Ferguson, who was a tough Northern Irish, Ulsterman, no drinking, no smoking, everything immaculate, da da da, and Fred Dixon was the opposite. And so, so difficult for your father to have done. Awful, I have. I had the letter. But during the war, when he, all those five long years, I've got lots of letters to his, from dad to his mother and then his sisters saying, um, giving Fred Dixon instructions from his prison camp about what should be done with the ERA and what should be done with this car and what should be done with that car and don't let him sell it to that bloke, you know, all, all this stuff going on. Yeah. And you have, you have all that, all those letters, absolutely, yeah, yeah, written, tiny little handwriting, yeah. Tell Fred this, tell Fred that. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's a story that resonates through Jaguar, that, actually, because um, we've interviewed several from the factory about the war years, mm. and even back at home in the factory for those that weren't serving, they were all involved in the production of aircraft or bits of military equipment, yeah. but on the side, yeah. all planning what the car company was going to do or how they were going to go racing when it all came to an end. They never forgot, they never, they never left it to one side. They were all working on these little projects, even though you know, the world had changed. Yep. Part of it was also keeping your own morale up, of course. You know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do we end up in the place then where um, Duncan Hamilton, Tony Rolt, the major, become a team that goes to fourth at Le Mans in 1950? What do we know about how that comes around? Dad went off to Dundrod and drove the Jaguar as quick as Sterling. And he, 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 there's a guy called Leslie Johnson who was, who was meant to be a reserve driver. Leslie was, wasn't well. Dad got in the car was very quick, at that which point Lofty England said, okay, you've got to drive, uh, you're on. And Dad, having successfully raced with Duncan at Le Mans, 
and done very well, said, yeah, he's, he's, he's the man. And so um, it was a sort of natural okay. fit, really. Um, I, I, I don't know any more than that. And, and I think they got on really well. I think, you know, by the time you've done two 24-hour races mm. with somebody, you know, you've, if you, mm. you know how, you're gonna, how you're going to relate. So they were very, they were different characters, but they got on really well. The Rob Walker Delahaye was, I think, with Leslie Johnson, and then along came Healy, and that's when they, the pairing started. The wives became best friends, and Lois Roth was my godmother, and my mum was Stuart's godmother. So we, you know, grew up together. And Stuart is my godfather. Incredible that it became so close, and your families became so intertwined during a relatively short period of time racing together, in fact, wasn't it? Um, it was a, all of this happened over a space of a few years in the early 1950s, and it just shows the strength of that relationship and how quickly it formed, I think. And of course, in those days, to go and race abroad, it's quite a big deal. Mm. You know, don't, you don't jump on an easy jet and... It, it was, yeah. where are we going this, this weekend? We're going to Le Mans or we're going to Reims or somewhere. And it's, um, you've got to get there. And so they were, they were units. They were, they were couples who spent a lot, long, long time together. And mm. so it was, um, you've got to be damn sure you're going to get on with the other team, with the other yeah. guys, yeah. which they did, really. Yeah. It's because apart from racing, they used to go on holiday together all the time, skiing and yeah. the cloisters and... Yeah. You and see you. And see you, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I mean, as a family, we spent, we grew up together. So it was she cemented, you know, wrote Hamilton. <laughs> did you talk about motorsport much when you were all together as families? Did it, no. did it have a presence in everyday life? Uh, well, we my brother great. was, I mean, looking at sort of carburettors and things, I think, <laughs> when he was about two years old. But, uh, no, I wasn't, really. Mm, I mean, I find it very exciting. Topic. I mean, so was it never a present topic when you were growing up? I mean, as a child, well, no, because, them, I mean, um, would they discuss it? The, uh, well, no, because, I mean, um, would they discuss it? They, uh, people sort of think it must have been great, but actually, uh, I never saw my father race. I was four years old when he won Le Mans, and the, he retired two years later. So I, I, I was conscious that my father was a racing driver, and had done quite well. But at the age of four or five, you don't really take that in. You think of your children at age four or five, they don't really know what's happening. So, um, so no, it wasn't a big, wasn't a big deal mm. to us at all mm. as a family. Later on, of course, absolutely. But um, by which time our grandfather, your grandfather, my father had retired. Yeah. Um, so then, then we were interested in... And a bit older, a bit more understanding. Or yeah. Yes, of course, as an yeah. adult. As a but child, it, I was taken to races. Um, Were you? Yeah, I was. I was, in fact, my mum told me I was breastfed in the pits. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite a claimed fame. <laughs> I don't know many people who could say that. <laughs> I was never told I was breastfed. <laughs> no, we didn't go to the races. <laughs> no. yes. What, age, age nine months, you mean? No. Well, whatever. I However. Don't know. How old are you when you're breastfed? Well, I went from, from very small, very small. I mean, up until, I, I don't know how long my breast fed me for, but she certainly couldn't leave me behind with a, an au pair, you know. I was attached, shall we say. 
<laughs> well, I, I wanted to go really deep dive in this interview, but I didn't realise we'd go as deep as that. Um, on the one hand, as we look back in history from our, our present point, it's very easy to get carried away in these very romantic, glamorous ideas of what motorsport was. I suspect the reality in the 1950s, especially the early part of the 50s, was far from that. Did it feel glamorous as, as children? Did, were you aware that you were in a glamorous kind of lifestyle? Or was it more grubby fingers and dark pit lanes and noisy places? What, what's your memories of those early My times as a child? Yeah. Well, I do remember um, playing in, uh, they used to have hay bales, you know, around and mum or whoever would, would make a sort of playpen for us. And I remember being plonked in, in those, and yes, and the roar and the noise and the smell of javelin oil um, was very much part of my childhood. Um, but no, I don't think it was glamorous, it was noisy. I don't know I that know. it was exciting. Um, yeah, I mean, I was... Not like it is today, we were being yeah, all I mean, hands on deck. Everyone there was no getting involved. And yeah, it didn't seem sort of frenetic, you know, things. But um, I have those memories as a child and lots of memories of my father. He was a huge presence. Um, and actually growing up, I didn't see very much of him because he was traveling a lot. My mother did choose, she wanted to be with him because I suppose in those days you never knew if he would die. You know, I mean, he could have done, been killed mm. in the practice runs, you know, let alone racing. And she wanted to be with him. So we did have au pairs later on. Um, so and he was nearly killed on a few occasions, and she was there. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Always. Absolutely. She was always there. Very yeah. stoic. Tolerant. Very. <laughs> yes, very tolerant. I suppose when someone's got such a deep passion and drive for something, you don't really have much of a choice, do you? You didn't have much of a choice of don't know. <laughs> His way. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the big contrast to how we think of motorsport today. You know, there was none of the big glamorous RVs that we have in pit lanes. Mm. You know, you, as you described, you were brought up in the back of the pit garage. Yeah, there was a caravan and you used to take it to Cornwall. Oh, that was later, yes. Oh, right. Yes, we'll well, when he retired, he had a caravan. But when he had the caravan for his engineers, and there were four bunk beds, and then there was, he went further along the caravan, and then there was um, one double bed which was into the wall, and another bed which was a bench which pulled out. So it slept one, two, three, four, it slept eight people. So it was quite a big one. <laughs> and he ended up driving it rather terrifyingly, I remember that very well, down to Devon, and plonking it in a football field. <laughs> in a little village called Thurlston. Um, yeah, it was absolutely wonderful. Very steep uh, field. We were at the top where all the thistles were. <laughs> and it remained there for, you know, we, all our childhood holidays. Not all of them, but a, a huge amount were down there. And, um, like a gypsy. <laughs> yes, it was. I remember Boy Scouts were being trained, you know, at the bottom end of the field. and. Mr. Stidston was the farmer, and he used to leave us milk on the, um, on the little by-steps, and it was a great treat uh, to go and get the eggs from the farm. Um, yeah, it was wonderful. So lucky. Thurston was so quiet in those days. There was nobody around, and 
Lovely. Yeah, it was magical. Let's sort of recap to where we're up to in the in the sort of history of things. So we've um, we've learned about um, the major, as we're now going to call him, um, meeting Duncan Hamilton um, driving that Nash Healy in 1950. Stuart, you've told us the story about Leslie Johnson taking ill at Dundrod. The major is now stepping into this Jaguar role for the mm. first time. This is where our Jaguar story really begins, isn't it? We're in 1951 now, it's Dundrod. Yeah. Tony Roll has now had his first run at a Jaguar works drive as this stand-in driver. This is the moment at which Lofty England comes to him and says, we'd like you to drive. Who do you want to drive with? Mm. And his answer was? Duncan. Yep, absolutely. And Duncan has a, a reputation by this point, doesn't he? Uh, and I think Lofty England's words were, you must be mad. Mm. Um, what was it, do you think, that he saw in Duncan past all of the, the kind of bravado of his reputation that he, that he had mm -hmm. so much in common with as a driver? A dad took his driving really seriously. It yeah. mattered a lot to him. And uh, he saw in Duncan someone who he could absolutely empathize with how the car would be, how you set it up, tactics through a long uh, race. Uh, they could, they, they'd already done two 24 hour races, as I said, and he knew he was absolutely, he was quick, he was reliable, didn't make mistakes, and, um, and they got on. And so it was, it was perfect, really. I think the only intervention I can say in that is that Dad was, known then to be very fast in the wet. Just to talk about the Grand Prix and the single-seater racing for a moment. Yep. Um, both had a career in, in Grand Prix in, in, in what we call, call Formula One now. Um, 1950, 53 and 55 seasons. Yep. It never really gelled for him though, did it? He always seemed to have a problem with the car, it seems. Well, Dad had, no, had, he had a very successful season uh, time with Rob Walker uh, driving his Connaught uh, in the, in England, in, in this country. So that went really well for him. He was very happy with that. He never, but his, he didn't have a Grand Prix career. He, he raced in three Grand Prix, I think, but, and, and not with any success. He had the Alpha, which wasn't quick enough, um, and the Connaught. But his, I got, uh, he had very happy memories of, of driving for Rob Walker um, in the Connaught, and that went really well. He won a lot of races in, mm -hmm. in 53, 53, yes, 53 uh, in, in, in single-seaters. And then after that, um, he just concentrated on, the, on, on sports cars with Jaguar. Mm -hmm. That was it. And he did a lot of other events other than Le Mans, but yeah, true. He would have, gosh, he wanted to be a Grand Prix driver. That's what he wanted mm -hmm. to be. But he had another thing going on in his life, which was the Ferguson business. Of course. Which was going rather, which was, and, and actually his, his employer, Harry Ferguson, was, very reluctant to have him out there racing and mm. in the end took, put huge pressure on him. Um, so when he retired, it was partly pressure from Harry Ferguson who thought he was a bit too valuable to be, to be killed racing. A bit of family. Um, and so, but it wasn't, there is a quotation from him. He was asked whether it was the, the horror of the 1955 crash, uh, disaster at Le Mans, mm. which influenced him. He said, no, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't. Although looking up, doing my homework last night, I found, and I've got them with me, some magazine articles, which long, long interviews with him. Um, 
which after the um, 55 crash, in which he said, and he said, if you look back at interviews with him two years previously, he said the main problem uh, at Le Mans was the speed differential between the very, very slow cars and the second major problem was the pit straight, which was lethal, it was so narrow, so you just pull off, no pit wall, nothing. And then, of course, with the, the horror was, of course, it, it, what he warned would happen, happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. yeah. And, and of course, Duncan Hamilton had a great time in, in Grand Prix racing as well, didn't he? Yes, he did. Largo Talbot, um, race with success. And uh, I think his best result was fourth at Sandford. Um, but he only did five. And uh, Formula Libre races. I mean, yeah, yeah. so Formula One Grand Prix was in it very much in its infancy. Yeah. Uh, so there was all sorts of different levels, but yeah. with, with great success. Yeah. And the odd slip and a bump here and there. But the skill set was obviously set out. And sports car racing, I think, at the time, was much bigger then than it certainly is today. It was probably like Le Mans was on a par with Formula One. There were people. There were people tuning into Le Mans on their radios throughout the night. And uh, yeah. the other day, after what was an epic Le Mans this yeah. year, I tuned into the BBC the next morning, and I got all the sports reports. It wasn't mentioned. I mean, Papa was not a, an athlete, shall we say, or was probably designed for single-seater racing. That's um, <laughs> true. Um, so I think a seat type was positively luxurious in comparison and more accommodating, shall we say, than something like a Largo Talbot, um, even though he was quite effective in it. And it's a point we should make, actually. Firstly, that um, you were not ever a single discipline driver in, these, in this time. You, you did everything, yeah. didn't you? You would be rallying, then you'd go and do some circuit racing, you'd do single-seaters, then you'd do sports cars. They were, they were a part of all of this. There was not one funnel for your career like there seems to be now. Um, and secondly, they weren't the athletes that they are now put under pressure to be. Um, and Duncan Hamilton in particular has a great reputation for having a fantastic, fun life, doesn't he? I'll put it that way. I think he had a very, very jolly time. Um, and fitness and a health regime was probably not at the top of the agenda. Uh, and I think it was Sterling who started that whole movement of fitness being yeah. so important, I guess. I've got that. There's a picture over there of, um, I just selected a few of them, of uh, before the 53 Le Mans. And they're walking down the pit lane before the start. And there are three drivers walking alongside each other. There's this wiry little athletic-looking Sterling. There's this rather tall, elegant Tony Rolls. And then there's Duncan, <laughs> looking slightly different shape to the other two. <laughs> looking Look. like they're a bouncer. Yes. <laughs> that was, I think they described him as burly. I mean, it's a funny word, burly. Mm. He was kind of battered-looking, I think. <laughs> he was ready for anything, but yeah, he was... But they used to run for the cars, didn't they? And, uh, well, I think Tony did that. Dad, Dad got that job. <laughs> yes, I yeah. think I remember, because I remember seeing um, your father coming into the pit stop and getting out, and Dad, he, he just climbed in then. Dad, Dad's job was sort of getting in at the pit stop. No running. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but at the start. <laughs> no, but at the start, uh, um, Sterling was famously 
always right on it. So, you know, sprint across the track, jump in, go. Uh, my father was a, a bit slower, but, you know, he, he, but he, yes, he always got the start job rather uh, than, rather than Duncan. Sort of you had to you had to jump in. It was almost like you had to have a different set of skills in many ways because his his part to play in especially 1953 was that physically you must have had to have been robust yep. to yep. sit in a C type in the howling gales and, and rain as it was that year, you know, and, and, and put up with that, you know. In the rain and the dark, yeah. going at those you know. speeds is terrifying. How long those stints would have been? Uh, stints were about two, two and a half hours, I think. Or well, sometimes yeah. they do a double stint, but say someone, it's a good question. Uh, it's all in the books, but that's that sort of thing. Sure. But, you know, as, you, as we were saying, these, these are the days, not long before that, there were people going through equally much tougher things, yes. fighting, yeah. fighting for that country. Yeah, so, exactly. yeah. you know, a couple of hours in a C-type Jaguar. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. <laughs> get on with it. Yeah. 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 At least they were on the ground. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no one shooting at them. 1952 is their first race together at Le Mans. It was a disaster yep. um, uh, in the C-type. Um, 1951, Peter Walker and Peter Whitehead had won fantastically for Jaguar for the first time. And then in 52, they returned with these different shapes on the C-type's body, which caused overheating and various other issues. As we sit here recording this today, it is exactly 70 years ago to the year that they returned to Le Mans again, again with Jaguar in 1953. They were equipped with disc brakes now as an incredible innovation. And um, this is where we have to spend a little bit of time, I think, putting history straight. Now, if uh, people are Googling uh, the story of the 1953 Le Mans or reading certain magazines, they'll hear the story about uh, Drunken Duncan, as he was later dubbed by the press. And let me start uh, my question, because I know in particular, Stuart, you know, you know where I'm going to go with this, by quoting Lofty England, who said in the press, I'd never have let them race under the influence I had enough trouble with them when they were sober. So let's just set for the video cameras and for everyone watching how this story came about. And let's start by explaining that in qualifying on the Thursday, there was a misunderstanding and they had been temporarily banned from racing, hadn't they? For or two, there were two number 18s at one stage out on the track. And that's what the, the French, the, the ACO said, uh, you, you've broken. You know, you've had two cars out with the same number. That was it. That was the that was the crime. They were reprimanded for doing that, uh, and there was a moment when they had to go before the stewards, and the stewards said, "You're in trouble for this," and they were given a reprimand and fined for that. That was it, and that that end of story. Mm. And um, on they went, and they they practiced quickly and. All was well. So it was a minor breach of the rules for which they got a slap on the wrist. Yeah, fair enough. And um, so how the rest of the story started, uh, you have to refer to um, the Hamiltons on that one. <laughs> well, there is a couple of things that don't quite add up, isn't there? Firstly, Thursday, as it is in modern times, mm. is qualifying. Mm. The race didn't start till Saturday afternoon. Correct. So they could never have been in a bar through the night and dragged out to go race in the next day first of all. Uh, and secondly, we've already understood in our interview with you so far what sort of characters we're dealing with here. They wouldn't have just 
thrown away an opportunity like this in, 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 in the way that there's perhaps the press have, have said that they did. So let's ask the Hamiltons, how did the story come about, do you think? Oh, my goodness me. It's, I mean, I grew up kind of knowing that story, so it's difficult to answer correctly. Um, but my father was a terrific storyteller. Um, he may have gone out on the Thursday. Yeah. Because there's no he race on the Friday. Had, they may have... And he may have just sort of forgotten and embellished a little for the, on those purposes. But, of course, there's no way in the world he would have started to throw no a race. There's no way, looking at the facts, it, it is possible. Hmm. I mean... No, and I think... There's no way. I mean, both the drivers were totally professional and excellent drivers. There's no way they would, as they say, drunken mm. drinking before a race. No. There's absolutely no way. And the shame, of course, it slightly detracts from what is a remarkable feat of human exactly. and mechanical endurance. And I think from Papa's standpoint, yes, that's a good, a good story. And wrote a, a book. Touchwood, which good opportunity to spin a little bit of a yarn. Which is one of the best-selling motor racing books ever. Yes, not surprising. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's a terrific book, and it's a very good read. <laughs> and um, I suppose also uh, one could today you could refer to it as a bit of PR with the, the business starting it off, and it was, uh, you know, but in reality, of course, they were very, very. Very quick, very professional, and there is is no way they would have embarked at two o'clock or three o'clock on Saturday afternoon, having been found running around in the street on Saturday morning. Well, I, I think the whole thing of the story is that it, it takes away the extraordinary yeah. feat, as Dominic's just said. But they wouldn't have won them all without each other. I mean, I think the pairing of Tony and Papa was remarkable, and the car itself being very innovative. Uh, and I think they would have known at the time they had a real chance to win the world's most famous motor race, and they wouldn't have jeopardised that um, yeah. the night before. It's a great story. It's, it's a good it's, story, and it it's sold, it's sold some books and, and, and probably sold a few cars over the years too. And it really used to wind up my father. I'm sure it did. Your lovely father, my great buddy, and I used to have long debates about this story. Oh, well, it's only a bit of fun. Come on, you know. And of course, it helped, uh, yeah, it helped with the whole. Yeah, the whole image. Yeah. And I used to say, yeah, but, you know, come on, Hammy. And uh, so anyway, it was um, the, and the idea that Sir William Lyons, you know, in this is going into the Jaguar archives, the idea of Sir William Lyons driving into Le Mans and finding them sort of plastered somewhere on the... On race day. Yeah, and so I, I bribed the frogs and uh, we're back in the race. You know, I never heard that. Yeah, it's in the book. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't read the whole book, I'm afraid. Yeah. The oh. embellishments are fantastic because at some point another character pops into the story that was giving them coffees on every pit. Yeah, I certainly know that. My mother and Auntie Lo Lois did give them a lot of coffee. Yeah, but that. <laughs> but that was normal. That yeah, was that was normal. normal. Yeah. yeah, but doing doing some more research again in the last couple of days, looking at what about the race, it's there, it's, it's history. I mean, official Jaguar books written by eminent journalists, it's in all of them, you know, that, uh, but only a couple of, I showed, I showed Dom, there's an article in Motorsport this, this month, yes, saying um, how this is a, sorry, but this is just not true. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I actually got Lofty England on tape saying it was a load of 
what I call bollocks, frankly. Mm. And um, so there it is. There we are. No, I, never... I think the story probably came out when Touch Wood was released. I can't believe that. Because I remember the writer meeting my father in the dining room and. I think we're blaming the ghostwriter. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> he was on that's commission. That's not fair on the ghostwriter. <laughs> this sounds good. Yeah, we'll yeah. 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 I don't think your grandfather would have just made the story up. I think, let's blame the ghostwriter. Yeah. yeah. Who hears about the little kerfuffle over the two number 18s yeah. and says, oh, this is good. Let's make a good story. You know, the next thing is William Lyons is driving into the mall to find them. Yes. Uh, uh, Rat-arsed on the... Yeah, yeah. But the whole um, thing is so obviously improbable because of the facts of the yeah, days, yeah. you know, so... But millions of people believe it, Caroline. I'm sure. But I bet there's, well, I there's, there's it. no media footage. It's out there. But I bet there's no media footage from 53 or 54, 55 regaling that story. I, I, I don't know. I'd be very surprised mm. if, it, if in any of the newspaper articles post-53 that there's any reference to them going out the night before. The, the thing that my father felt so strongly about, and we've said it, you've said it, I've said it, is that um, the, this, what he thought, ridiculous story, really undermined what they achieved. Yeah. And um, that's what he wanted people to remember, not this story. Um, and sadly, historically, it is the thing that has gone out there to, to a lot of people, and it's still out there, Dom. Um, you can read about it every day. If you if you Google it, and it's uh, not, nothing nothing one can do about it, but it's a pity. I think it is. I mean, as you say, refer reference to Motorsport magazine the other day, things like this, yep. and you and I were on the same hymn sheet. Yep, yep. That is being corrected, yep, which yep. is which is absolutely right yep. and extremely important. That history is documented accurately, uh, and. This side story does not detract from what was a remarkable achievement. Absolutely, and I think the story for me is almost um, the, the sort of the, almost the better part of the story is that quote that I started with um, because of what it tells us about the kind of bit of mischief, the close relationship that the two had, <laughs> and their relationship with Lofty England, where he said, I had enough trouble with them sober. <laughs> yeah. I used to love to let that happen. I love that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It's an insight, isn't it, yeah. to, to how tight knit this yeah. little team was. That concludes part one of this fascinating interview. I hope you've enjoyed it. We'll have part two in a future episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast podcast, where we talk in great detail about 1953, what happened in the race that year, and what Tony Rolt and Duncan Hamilton would go on to do after that amazing victory. The interview in this podcast was reproduced with kind permission from the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust and represents an audio extraction from a video archive series that is locked away in the Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust archive forever. Well, that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast podcast. Do keep in touch with us, though, and let us know about your own Jaguar stories via the contact form at jcpodcast.com where you can also sign up to receive new episodes of this podcast automatically for free by subscribing via your favourite podcast provider. We're on them all. Google, Apple, Spotify. Pick which one works for you. 
You can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Now button on the top right-hand side of the podcast page at jcpodcast.com. When you join, you'll also get our big, chunky, glossy, lovely 180-page monthly magazine. It's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.